You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, good evening. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you and uh, to find myself, uh, given the opportunity, uh, to spend a few Sundays with you uh, between now and Christmas, mostly in the evenings, but occasionally in the mornings as well. And uh, I'm going to take the opportunity, uh, particularly in the evenings, to uh, work through some of Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. So uh, we're going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to make it all the way through, and uh, that's, uh, that's fine. Uh, we'll get as far as we get. And uh, let me just say it's also a pleasure to be uh, back ministering in Dundee generally. If, um, most of you won't know me. And uh, I was for 10 years a minister just up the road at Logan St. John's Cross. And then we went to Aberdeen in 1998, uh, where I've been a minister at Gilcomson Church until about three weeks ago. And uh, it's wonderful to have the opportunity to come back and to preach here. Um, three of our four children were born here, so I've spent many a time standing at Blackness Primary Gates. I was chaplain there at the Harris Academy for a while. And uh, this is my first time at St. Peter's, or indeed St. Pete's, without the apostrophe. And uh, so those of you who are new to St. Peter's uh, today, um, I am in your company in that experience. So let's read from 2 Corinthians. This evening, I'm just going to do sort of introductory stuff and look at the first two verses. And then uh, the next Sunday evening that I'm here, which I think is probably October 25th or something, so it's a long gap, uh, we'll look at um, verses 3 through to 11. So we'll read the whole of the first 11 verses just now, even though we'll only look at verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the present province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. 
Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Uh, Well, a few comments by way of introduction. Um, and some of these um, you will be able to remember, and I hope they're helpful, and some of them might go straight in one ear and out the other, uh, but that's how it goes sometimes, isn't it? Um, Paul, in all his ministry, um, the missionary journeys, the revisiting churches that have been planted, the visiting churches that have been planted by those who have been converted uh, where he preached the gospel, uh, his writing, his receiving news from different congregations. Um, in, in all that ministry, uh, Paul faced, by and large, four sets of opposition. And uh, the first was from the non-Christian world in which he preached. Um, and uh, particularly, uh, the hostility that he received from both Jew and Gentile. So the notion that if you're being a really good Christian, if you're really brilliant at witnessing and you're a fantastic natural evangelist, everybody's just going to fall over in repentance every time you walk out the door, is false. Um, Paul faced opposition from the non-Christian world into which he preached the gospel. The second kind of opposition he faced uh, was from a particular set of people who were following him around Um, essentially trying to corrupt those who had become Christians in the young churches that um, had grown. And they were coming from a Judaistic background. And by and large, the Judaizers who sort of came in um, wanted to do two things. First of all, they just really hated the message of the gospel. They were doctrinally, theologically opposed, intellectually opposed to the message of the gospel because uh, it seemed to them to be uh, an absolute license for libertinism. And it seemed to suggest that because God would forgive your sins and love you unconditionally and had shown grace in Christ, therefore it didn't really matter what sort of conduct you displayed. So they had a legalistic misreading of the gospel. So they would come in afterwards... And they would try and correct people and say, no, 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 your grace is wonderful, but you've got to put yourself in the position of being able to receive grace, in inverted commas. And you did that by fulfilling um, the works of the law, uh, the Jewish law, the Ten Commandments, and uh, loads and loads of other rules and regulations that surrounded them. So the Judaizers came in, intellectually opposed to the gospel, with a sort of a, a... corruption of it, a little addition to it, effectively saying that when Jesus on the cross said, it is finished, what he actually meant was, it's sort of finished and you can really finish it off yourselves if you just do the right thing. The second strategy of the Judaizers was to completely discredit Paul himself. And if you could discredit the guy, then you could discredit his message. So there was just the the opposition from the non-Christian world around him. Then there was the Judaizers. 
The third opposition to Paul's ministry was his own sinfulness, which he is painfully aware of. Uh, He is aware not only of his sinfulness, um, but of his weakness. And he knows that those things get in the way of his ministry because they get in the way of his daily walk and obedience with God. And so when Paul writes in Romans chapter 7 um, about his sinfulness and about this law that seems to be at work in him, that the good that he would do he does not do and the evil that he would not do that very thing he does, he, he ends up saying, oh, wretched man that I am, not a wretched man that I was, but a wretched man that I am. He talks about Christ dying for sinners, not of whom I was chief, but of whom I am chief. And he knows that, that the work of the gospel through him faces opposition within him. And then there is a fourth source of, of sort of opposition uh, for the gospel, and that comes from the fellowships uh, within the churches that he's planted. Um, people get cynical about him, or people don't think that he's kind of flash and posh enough. And people want their evangelists to be rather like Stella Artois, that is reassuringly expensive. If that doesn't mean anything to you, get a life, okay? <laughs> get a beer. Uh, no, get a life. Um, they, they, want, they want their apostles to look good and sound good. It's rather like the, the sort of modern-day equivalent of wanting your, pro, your politicians, particularly in America and your presidential candidates, um, to, to look good and sound good and they're good visually and all the rest of it. So they're crossed between a kind of a game show host, but they've got to have some gravity about them so a news anchor man might be good or whatever. Um, and if you ever read Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, then you would um, read a very acute... Um, uh, analysis of how the American presidential ra- um, races inevitably become um, races to do with image, which gives the Republicans a very interesting time at the moment, does it not? Um, you just wonder what that hairpiece would look like in the White House. Um, Paul didn't look good. He wasn't flash. He would not have been good on camera. He didn't sound good. He wasn't a brilliant orator. He had not gone through all the oratorial, uh, oratorical schools. Um, he was uh, easily discredited on the face of his appearance and his manner. And that meant that some of the churches that had grown through his preaching of the gospel were easily hoodwinked into thinking that Paul wasn't actually up to much. He wasn't one of the super apostles. And he faced, therefore, an opposition not to the initial message of the gospel, but to the fruitfulness of the gospel in the lives of those believers. And he felt it keenly. All four types of opposition coalesce in the situation that gave rise to 2 Corinthians. So 2 Corinthians is full of Paul's response to these kinds of opposition to him personally, but far more importantly, to the message of the gospel and to its fruitfulness in people's lives. So 2 Corinthians has a lot of pain in it. 2 Corinthians has a lot of emotion in it. 
2 Corinthians is absolutely fantastic if you are laboring under the myth that if you're a good Christian, life will go swimmingly. It's very interesting that, that you're reading through Job at the moment because the, the point that Job makes is, is to just blow apart completely the notion that there is some uh, direct cause-effect link morally and in terms of our condition. So it blows apart the prosperity gospel, for instance. But it blows apart many of our notions of what a successful ministry looks like. Uh, notions that are held either by ministers or by members of congregations. See, Job was a righteous man, but suffered. And the, the, the sort of recurring problem for his comforters, as we we're reading tonight, is that sort of true words are spoken, but still within the framework that, you know, if, if you're good, then you will have a good life. If you're bad, then you'll have a bad life. Job, you're having a bad life, therefore you must have been a bad person. And if only you repent, not that he's actually got anything to repent of, but if only you repent, then your life will be good, because you will then be good, and your circumstances will go well. Well, just as Job stands as the Old Testament example, that that's a load of baloney, Paul stands as the New Testament example after Christ that that's a load of baloney. So in actual fact, living a life that is right before God gives you no guarantee of an easy life. In fact, it will more likely do the exact opposite. Because if you live right before God, you're going to find yourself in massive spiritual warfare. You'll find yourself opposed without and within. So, 2 Corinthians contains loads and loads of Paul's emotion, his feelings. Um, why have we got 2 Corinthians? Um, well, we've got 2 Corinthians because we've got 1 Corinthians. That's the maths over with. But Basically, the, the pattern goes like this, and this is going to bless you so much that you'll hardly be able to walk on the ground tomorrow. Uh, and when Satan comes and tempts you, then you just reply to him with this next bit. We've got to do this because you just do this when you're starting a series. Um, but it also might help make some sense of, of some of the things that we'll encounter later. Um, Paul first visited Corinth, the city of Corinth, on his second missionary journey, as we tend to call them. So um, he was in Corinth for about 18 months uh, in the years 50 to 52 AD. After that first visit, uh, he wrote a letter. And that letter is what we have as 1 Corinthians. Then he made a second visit. And he made a second visit, um, which he refers to in 2 Corinthians 13, 1. It was his painful visit that he refers to in chapter 2, verse 1, and he made it about 55, 56 AD. Now, he was going to make a third visit, 56, 57 AD, on his third missionary journey. First, in chapter 13, verse 1, he would be there for about three months, and his intention was that he would go from there on, he would travel west, and he would take the gospel to Spain. So between the second visit and the third visit, he wrote this letter. Now, 
Those New Testament scholars have um, thought a lot and probably written even more on whether there were three letters or four letters. Was there another visit in there? Whatever. Did he actually, um, you know, sort of visit New York on the way or something? He, but the, the, the most sort of straightforward and sensible explanation of what we got in the text is that there were those three visits and between visits 1 and 2, he wrote 1 Corinthians. And between visits 2 and 3, he wrote 2 Corinthians. The second visit was a painful one. The second visit was the one that he had to give them a big row. The second visit was, was one where stuff that we find in 1 Corinthians about their splits and factions were beginning to come to the surface. And their opposition to him was beginning to come to the surface. There was also an issue about money. And that, the, the, the issue was about collecting money so that it could be given to the poor, to Christians in other parts, notably back in Jerusalem, who were suffering. Now, those difficulties, and we can read about the, sort of the, the, the beginnings of them in, in 1 Corinthians, those difficulties were compounded by a bunch of Judaizers who came along to discredit Paul's gospel by discrediting discrediting him. So by the time Paul is writing what we have as two Corinthians, and there was at least one other letter, by the time Paul was writing what we have as two Corinthians, um, all the work that he did in Corinth during that 18-month first visit all the growth he saw in the church, all the potential for spiritual maturity, which there was in Corinth, was just beginning to crumble. Not because he was a bad guy, nor because he was deficient in his preaching of the gospel, but because someone didn't want the church to grow in Corinth. Or someone didn't want the church in Corinth to be any different from the rest of Corinth. And somebody didn't want the glory to go to Jesus Christ. Because there was a kind of a satanic, devilish opposition. Now, all that gives to Corinthians, roughly speaking, its structure. So, at the first seven chapters... What Paul is doing is, if you like, defending, explaining, giving an account of his conduct and his ministry. He wants to take them back to what his ministry was actually like and how that came out of the very truth of the gospel itself, that he was what he preached. So the first seven chapters, he's basically saying, look, I'm not the guy that they're making me out to be. I am weak. I am broken. I am not much to look at, but that's actually part and parcel of the gospel and what it means to be a Christian, to live by the grace of God and not by your own power. And then chapters 8 and 9, we have two chapters on money. Um, And we may get to those, who knows. And then the third major section, uh, chapters 10 to 11, which kind of stand alone Um, Paul is vindicating his um, authority to preach um, in the face of the more recent attack by the Judaizers. 
So, um, those are the sort of the main bits of, of 2 Corinthians. Um, the explanation of what he's already been doing, um, chapters 8 and 9 on the collection for the church in Jerusalem, and then 10 through 13, Paul vindicating his authority to preach against the Judaizers and therefore vindicating the gospel that he's preached. Now, all that's background. That's introductory. When we get to October 25th, I may mention some of that again. If you've forgotten it, don't worry. If by about 10 past 7 you've forgotten it, don't worry. You can always go back over it again. So, when Paul opens up, we're going to drill into verses 1 and 2 a little bit now. When Paul opens up his letter, um, we know that when, when, when Paul opens, he, he takes the normal sort of greeting, the normal start of a letter, and he just Christianizes it. So, if you've never heard this before, if you've never sat through a sermon series that starts on Paul's letters, and you know the, the normal thing to say is that Paul does the normal opening letter, but he totally Christianizes it. So the normal opening is to say who it's from. We leave that till the end, which can be a bit mystifying. Well, we do with letters. It doesn't happen with emails. Thankfully, emails come with the person it's come from at the top, which can be very useful because you can just delete it straight away then or call it junk from thenceforth. Um, but the normal pattern was to put the, who it's from at the top and then who it's to, which is also very useful. So that, that heading on an email is a bit more New Testament than we might normally think. And then it was customary to give some kind of blessing, you know, to sort of a, you know, smooth the way and butter someone up a bit. So, you know, from Dominic to David, may your auntie's budgie live forever or something like that. Or, you know, may you be prepared for all those talks that you're going to give and may you not fall asleep whilst you're speaking. Um, which one uh, lecturer did at Aberdeen when I was studying theology, he actually fell asleep in his own lecture, which is a considerable feat. Um, it was a practical theology lecture, and uh, believe me, we had often been tempted to fall asleep in them also, but he managed it, which gives you a problem when you're a student, because, like, what do you do then? You know, the guy's fallen asleep. He obviously needs his sleep. Do you just get up and walk out, or do you wake him and embarrass him, or what? So we just left and uh, <laughs> quietly left him in peace. So he, from to here's a, and, and, and a blessing. Now, it's not enough to say in this instance that Paul just does that and he just Christianizes it with some Christian jargon. For two reasons. First of all, that might tempt us to do the same and just trot out Christian jargon and Christian platitudes as a cover for something else. Um, the second reason why you can't really say that is because Paul dives into the very subject matter that I've just been giving a hint of in the opening words. Um, Paul gets on with the job from just about the first word, well, certainly in English, the third word. So what we've got in the first two verses of uh, 2 Corinthians 1 in a sense, is the kind of the overture to the whole symphony. An awful lot of what we're going to encounter is clearly in Paul's mind when he opens, and as Timothy is writing it out or whatever. So, um, in these two verses, we encounter three things. There have to be three things because this is a sermon, so there have to be three things. Um, first is his identity. And that's in verse 
first part of verse 1. Second, their identity, second part of verse 1. And the third thing is what they need, which is in verse 2. So his identity, their identity, and their needs. Who is he? It's going to be absolutely crucial to what he writes. It's going to be crucial to his defense of the gospel. It's going to be crucial to the way in which he can say with authority that in actual fact, being a Christian is not a matter of being strong and flash and you know some kind of super person that just looks wonderful. It is a matter of weakness and brokenness and total dependence upon God. He opens up by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. So he hasn't been sent there and sent out with the gospel by some school of people, but he has been sent. So he didn't arrive in Corinth in 50 AD off his own bat. He wasn't there trying to just make some money. He wasn't there trying to make a name for himself and spread his influence. He was sent. Somebody thought that he ought to be there. And that somebody communicated it to him. And he went and he got there. And it was an apostle of Christ Jesus. That is sent with the message about Christ Jesus. So somebody thought that the people in Corinth needed to hear about Jesus and somebody thought that Paul was the person to go there and tell them and that somebody communicated it to Paul and Paul, in obedience to that somebody, went to tell them about Jesus. The somebody is the Father by the will of God. Now that is... An absolutely crucial thing for you and me, whether you're going to be preaching or whether you're going to be bearing witness to Jesus Christ on whatever your front line is, to know who you are and why you are where you are. And if you don't know that, then you will either fold under pressure, which Paul didn't do, though under massive pressure. Or you will distort whatever you've got to say in order to look good. Or you'll just completely lose your way in some other form. If you don't know who you are and why you are where you are, in a way which goes beyond the social conventions beyond the immediate explanations that you're in Dundee to study or you're in Dundee for a job or you're in Dundee because you, you just didn't happen to be in Barbados or somewhere or you're, you're in Dundee because you took a wrong turn on the dual carriageway or something. If, if you know those things, then what will you have? First of all, you've got to, you, you will have a clear idea of what your priority is. And the second is that you'll have resilience. Paul knew that because he was in Corinth, because he had been sent, and been sent by the Father in order to preach the message of Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, 
That's what he had to get on with. Now, every single one of us is also not in the sense of having the authority that the apostles had, not in the sense of doing the kind of primary work that the apostles were doing, but in the sense of being sent. Every single one of us shares that identity. So, you've got a front line. You've got a place and people that you will be meeting tomorrow. You'll be working amongst, larking around with, standing chatting with, drinking coffee with, whatever. And you're not there by accident. You're not there just by some weird cause and effect process that happened to have taken you there. You're there because you've been put there. And you've been put there because those people need Jesus Christ. So, your chief responsibility is not to be popular, not to be liked. Your chief responsibility is not to worry about what they think of you, but to be concerned about what they think of Jesus. I was reading a book donkey's years ago called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire by Jim Simbler. It was not a book that I would ever have bought. Somebody gave it to me and it absolutely blessed my socks off, um, as it says in the authorized version. And in it, um, Jim Simbler had started on the Tuesday evening at a church in, in, um, in, in uh, Brooklyn. Uh, became called Brooklyn Tabernacle Church. Um, he started a prayer meeting. And he was announcing it on the Sunday. You know, they, would, they would have this prayer meeting. And uh, it was a bit of a bombshell for the, for the church. The numbers had gone right down. People didn't have prayer meetings. It looked as if it was kind of dead in, in the water. But he said, we're going to have a prayer meeting. And there was a, a, a pastor in the, church, in the church that morning visiting. And that pastor came up to the front and said something. That's what happened in, in their church. It doesn't happen in many churches. Um, but he said something. He said, you can tell how popular the church is by the morning service. He said, you can tell how popular the preacher is with the evening service. He said, you can tell how popular Jesus is at the prayer meeting. You see, our natural default thing is, what do people think of me? There are all sorts of reasons for that, but it becomes a preoccupation. Most preachers' prayers, most of the time, before they preach, is some kind of version of, Lord, please let me get out of here with some credibility intact. <laughs> some words that affect more or less spiritual. But if you know that you have been sent on behalf of Jesus Christ by the Father, then your concerns change. And your concern about what people are thinking changes. And you start listening to people differently. You start listening to where they really are. You start listening to what they think they really need. You start listening to their worries and their fears and their hopes. Because all the time, 
what's going on in your mind is where is the contact point? Where is the in for the gospel? Not, you know, everything they need to know to repent right there and then, but where is the in for the grace of God that has been revealed in our Lord Jesus Christ? Where is the in for the truth of God? That's what Paul did in Athens, wasn't it? Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious, too religious. You know, gone wandering around looking at all their gods and even seeing this one to an unknown God. And that was Paul's in. I'm going to tell you about the God you don't know about. Second thing about Paul's identity is that he's not alone in this work. And Timothy, our brother. Now, that's not simply saying, you know, Timothy's a great guy and you should listen to him and wonderful chap. It's just part and parcel of what Paul does as a Christian that he's doing it with other Christians. We, in our post-enlightenment, post-modern um, Western world, are, by and large, born individualists. Our culture teaches us to be individualistic. Even when we're sitting listening to sermons, most of us are thinking, what has this got to say to me? And when we go away from church, we're thinking, did I get what I wanted out of that? Did the music do anything for me? Did the preacher make any sense to me? What did I think of it? What will my life be like tomorrow? We are just inveterate individualists. But that is like a million miles from what we read in the Bible. And it's a million miles from where we were created. It was not good for a man to be alone. As far as the Bible is concerned, we are indissolubly connected. So when Paul did his ministry, he wasn't the kind of figure that we often think of. You know, there's Paul out there battling in front against all these raging elements and satanic forces and sort of head down and battling against the blizzards of adversity and everybody else's, you know, miles. Not at all. He was always doing his mission with other people. The commission from Jesus and the other commissions, apart from the one at the end of Matthew's gospel, are all given to people with personal, with plural personal pronouns. So you're not doing it alone. You might think you're the only Christian who is at the school gates tomorrow afternoon or in your class or in your place of work or whatever. You might for a while be the only Christian there. But you're not alone. You've got a whole fellowship You've got friends with you. When, when, when David is you know, in, in some radio studio, you are as good as there with him when you're praying for him. So, you see how the, the, Paul's knowledge of who he is and why he is where he is and why he's doing what he's doing is so important. And it's going to get unpacked as he goes. So you know, he didn't come to you in his own strength, to, 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 to Corinth in his own strength. He came 
by the will of God. He didn't come to boost his own ego, but on behalf of Jesus Christ, to make Christ glorious and magnificent in their eyes. Second, their identity. Um, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia. Now, let's, let's take the second thing first. Just as Paul is not alone, neither are the Corinthians. So the way they are is going to affect the way that all God's people are throughout the whole province of Achaia. Corinth was the capital of, of, of the province. What they are like will ring out one way or another throughout Achaia, just as earlier on the way that the Thessalonians had responded to the gospel rang out all through Macedonia, which was the, the province that Thessalonica was the capital of. It still is. So, what, what the Corinthian Christians are isn't just to be their own concern. They're part and parcel of the body of Christ throughout the whole province. So, who are you? Well, we're St. Pete's. Yeah. Is that it? No. So, your walk with God as a fellowship is part and parcel of the whole work of God because it's part of the whole people of God in this city. Not just because he sends you out from this place into all the parts of the city, but because in God's eyes you are indissolubly connected with other fellowships in this city. I mean, what's the alternative? That St. Peter's is the body of Christ in Dundee and everybody else is like what? Like prosthetic or something? So, that's in the second part of, of a little bit about Corinth. It's the first part that's the crucial thing, to the church of God in Corinth. Now, that little phrase, church of God, you can take it two ways. You can mean the church that God produced in a genitive sense of God, or you can take it to be the church that belongs to God in a kind of possessive sense. And you know what I'm going to say next. You're going to say it's both. Yes, it's both. You're the church, the ecclesia, the called ones who were called together into life and existence, not just into the same building, by God. And so you belong to God. You belong to God more than you belong to Corinth. Corinth didn't produce you. You're not a cultural artifact. Sure, the culture will produce religion, and Corinth produced many religious artifacts, as well as some phenomenally irreligious artifacts. But you're not just a product of the culture. So here this evening, you're not just a product of a sort of a, a, a kind of a residual religiousness in, in Britain. You're not just the product of particular religious streams. If you're the church, then you're the product of the work of God. You are his handiwork. And therefore, you don't belong to Dundee. So that Dundee calls the shots in your life. That is to say, you don't get shaped and molded 
by the culture around you. You have to be, as a fellowship, dramatically and visibly countercultural. And you will be, insofar as you behave, as those who are called by God to Himself and to one another. So, what that means is that you're going to be odd. You are called to be weird. Now, I know some of you. I know that for some of you, that comes really naturally. And you hardly needed to be called. You just get out of bed in the morning. It's going to happen. But I know that some of you don't like being different. I know that some of you don't like being the odd one out in the office or whatever the workplace happens to be. I know that for some of you, you are more comfortable as a chameleon than as whatever, some bird of paradise. That would be good. And you, you're far more comfortable just blending in, not being noticed. But that's not an option. That's not an option because you are called by God to himself. You are his possession. So the way he wants you to live as a fellowship, primarily, and therefore as individuals, just has to be different. So what, what, what would the differences look like? What would the differences look like in terms of compassion for the people in the community around you? What would the differences look like in terms of speaking the truth over against falsehood? What would the differences look like in terms of general neighborliness, both here around this building, but wherever else God has put you? What, what would the, uh, the, the, the weirdness and the oddness look like if a non-Christian's ideas about you and stereotypes about you are that you're arrogant, bigoted, stupid, or you know you wear sandals all the time because you're a Christian. You see what the call is? Because the call is from God and because you belong to God, your call is inevitably going to mean that you've, you're just going to be countercultural. So if our culture is rampantly individualistic, what does it say to be part of a body? And how different is that? If the culture is absolutely, inescapably conditional, so that you have to look right in order to fit, or sound right in order to fit, how do you be countercultural as a community, as a family, as God's people? If you have to qualify for a welcome in the world, which you do, if you have to earn your way in to the social setting in the workplace, how are you going to be countercultural here when somebody walks through the door who quite patently doesn't fit? So, 
Paul's identity, their identity, what do they need? They need grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? See, we would, we would very often immediately say, yes, we need peace. We are, we are troubled within, we live in a troubled world, the church is in a troubled state, etc., etc. We need peace, lots of peace. I and mean, we don't just need peace in the normal sense, we need thoroughgoing shalom. You know, we'll go for the, the whole thing. It is so easy for us in the Christian church, in the Christian life, to forget that every single day we need grace. There will not be a moment that you live the Christian life that you are not living it by the grace and by the mercy of God. That seems strange, doesn't matter how long you've been at church, doesn't matter how much you do in a church, doesn't matter how wonderful you do as a witness out there. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Some of us can go nearly a full ten minutes without sinning. And then after ten minutes we think, wow, and we've sinned. (laughs) We've blown it. We just can't do it. Why was it that when Paul was writing to the church in Rome, he said we live by faith from first to last? Because there will never, ever be a day in your Christian life. It doesn't matter how old you get to be. And there will never be a moment in the life of this fellowship when you do not need the righteousness of Christ. It is the only righteousness there is. It's all the righteousness there is. You will never, or against the Judaizers, be able to say, I earned it. You will never be able to say, I really deserve that. As a fellowship, you'll live by grace, or you won't live at all. As the called ones of Christ, as the sent out ones with Christ, if you're not doing it just totally dependent upon the grace of God, astonishingly aware of your own weakness, you'll never do, you can do religious stuff, but you'll never do this stuff. There will never be a day when any of us here do not need grace and peace from God our Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means we don't even need to wait for tomorrow to pray for that for each other, do we? We will need it even through the rest of this evening, though there isn't quite as much left of it as I thought there would be when I began. Let's pray. Father, we we feel um, the same kind of pressures that we know are uh, facing people in the world around us. Uh, We are in that respect, Lord, no different that we lose sight of who we are.
What an amazing thing. What an astonishing thing to be able to think and say to you that we are yours and that we are sent by you into this world to make Jesus great, to magnify his holy name, to lead people to the Savior, to the Lord, to tell people of the one who is the world's hope and the world's danger. Just amazing. We worship you for your grace to us. We thank you that it really is grace. Which is why we can rest on it. Thank you that it comes from you and it's not some kind of favor which is produced by us. Else it would be no foundation for life at all. Thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. We ask that your spirit would seal your word into our minds and hearts and the devil would not snatch it away. And that tonight and tomorrow, your spirit will bring it back to the front of our minds and turn it into prayer and into thanksgiving. May we see your word within our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.